Uh, I want to talk to you about learning from history. What do they say about history? They that, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the only thing that men learn from history is that men never learn from history. And that's true. We don't learn the lessons of history. We're going to try. Uh, we're, going to go to, we're going to try to break the cycle and say, all right, there are some things for us to learn. Acts chapter 6, and when you're turning there, uh, uh, look there in verse 12. We're going to pick up where we talked last week. And Stephen is standing accused. Acts chapter 6 and verse 12, and they stirred up the people. And these were the Pharisees, the religious zealots of the day. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him, Stephen, and they caught him and brought him to the council, brought him to court. And they set up false witnesses. They paid some guys to, to lie about him, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, against the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Was he worried? Was he put out? Not at all. Man, he's beaming from ear to ear. Stephen stands accused. He's got some twisted accusations that he's blaspheming the, the Jewish temple and he's blaspheming against the law of God. Very serious offenses. In that day, obviously, he could be stoned. And he was. If he was found guilty. And yet Stephen doesn't mind. Stephen, as we just said, was beaming with joy. He had no problem standing there before that crowd of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and religious elders. He was actually confident and, and excited. He was not panicking. He was not fearful. Now, I've been in trouble. I mean, you, you get pulled over by the Garda, and you're like, oh. And then, I mean, there's no way to argue unless they're desperately wrong, obviously. And then says, you're going to have to go to court. Can you imagine? I've got to go to court. And then you're standing for court. And then your solicitor doesn't look like he knows what he's doing. And the judge is looking really mean today. And you get a little fearful, but not Stephen. You know, he remembers that days like this was going to come where he said, you're going to be brought before councils. You're going to be brought before courts, before the powers that be. And Stephen seems ready for it. Now, what was he accused of? He was accused of two very serious crimes. Murder, right? No. Was it accused of theft or of physical abuses or of bribery or of rape? He was accused of predicting that Jesus was going to come back and destroy the Jewish temple. He didn't claim he was going to destroy it. He didn't carry a bomb on his vest. He was not going to try to do anything. He says, Jesus is coming back and he will destroy this temple. He was secondly accused that he was going to change Moses' laws. Verse 7, look at, I mean, chapter 7, verse 1. Then said the high priest, are these things so? Is this true? Because to them, these were serious crimes against their religion. And if you ever want to make somebody upset, say something against somebody's religion, okay? <laughs> now, you got to remember, the Pharisees nearly worshipped the temple. They thought the temple was the presence of God. And they had a... a a, uh, a memory that memorized the law of God. But they, they thought that if you, if you 
ever said that they would be changed, which the, actually the Bible says, the Old Testament law says it was going to be changed. If you ever said that, they thought, you're, you're attacking my religion. So Stephen's there, and in all of these things, he doesn't sit there and plead the fifth. You know what the fifth is? It's an American statement. It means plead the fifth amendment, which means I'll just stay quiet. You have to prove me that those accusations are true. But no, he's going to actually prove <laughs> exactly what he's guilty of. So he begins back in verse 2, and we're going to go through some history here. And the reason why I'm jumping right in this and, and, and being very, because this is one of the longest chapters in the Bible that you could ever preach from. Well, I, I like to go verse by verse, and I want you to see the depth of what Stephen is saying here. Verse 2. Verse 2, it says, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Charon, or Haran, we'd say. Verse 3. And said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and, un and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land where ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised, and I wish you would circle that word. He promised, God promised, that he would give it to him for a possession. And again, here's another promise. And to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. God spake on this wise, that this, this promised seed should sojourn in a strange land. We know that to be Egypt. And that they should bring them, the people of that land, into bondage. Israel's going to be brought into bondage. And will entreat them evil 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. Wait a minute. Is that a promise? Do you see God's making promises? You're going to have a kid. Yeah, they're going to inherit this land, but before they do, they're going to be in Egypt. They're going to be in bondage, but I'll bring them out, and they're going to be in this land, and they will serve me in this place. I will judge. That was another promise. I forgot this. I will judge them. After that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. And he, God, gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs, the 12 fathers of the 12 tribes. Okay, so Stephen begins with Abraham. That's where the story of faith begins. Um, Abraham is, oh, well, let me say this. Sorry. What was God doing making promises? You know what faith is? Faith is not seeing what God is saying, faith is believing the promises of God. That's it. God makes promises and you decide to believe it. Now, there's, 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 there's all these ideas of how complicated faith is. No, faith is God said it, that settles it. I believe it. And that's faith. Faith is I trust what God can do, not what I can do. And Abraham is the father of faith. Again, Abraham's 90 years, actually, Abraham's 75 years old when God says, I'm going to give you a child. And Abraham says, oh, I'm a little old. <laughs> I'm not sure how we're going to get that done. <laughs> and uh, God says, you're going to have not just one, you're going to have children numbering the stars of the sky. And Sarah says, you looking at me? <laughs> and the two of them are just wondering, how can this be? But Abraham, what does he do? He believes God. 
And that's faith. That's why it's called the father of faith. He believes the promises of God. Now, he struggles with it. It takes 25 years before God brings that promise to pass. Uh, Stephen then points out uh, that God has a special relationship with, e with Israel. Look at verse 8. Not with Ishmael, not with England, and not with Ireland, not with America, but with Israel. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant. Covenant is kind of like when you put a ring on somebody's finger and you're getting married. You're, you're sealing the covenant with a token. And God sealed the covenant, this agreement between him and Israel with circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac. Yes, he begat Ishmael and the Arabs. But he begat Isaac and he circumcised him. Didn't circumcise Ishmael. At that time, it was to eat with Isaac. The eighth day, and Isaac, he does circumcise Ishmael. Don't misunderstand that. But Ishmael's not in the, in the position of the promise. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. What is he saying? So far, Stephen's saying everything the Jews there in his crowd are, are going to believe. That Israel is in a special place with God. God is bound to his people. But I want you to understand this. Physical uh, circumcision is is, is more than just a physical act. And uh, uh, Stephen's going to remind them of this because he's going to call some circumcised people uncircumcised, isn't he? Now, you're going to just remember that. Then he goes on and he talks in verse 19. I'm sorry, is it verse 9? Sorry, verse 9. And I want you to watch this word that I'm going to use. It's not here, but you understand what it is. The patriarchs, well, it, sorry. It is here. I'm just trying to run through my mind. I'm not, I don't, I feel dis, uh, disjointed today. Anybody else feel like today doesn't feel like Sunday? It's kind of like, am I in the right time frame here? I'll take a breath. I'll start over. Verse 9, this word is in here because it's a very powerful word. Verse 9, the patriarchs moved, they reacted with envy. Now remember that. Uh, and sold Joseph into Egypt. Stephen reminds those those men stand out there that Joseph was rejected. This, this feeling of envy is throughout the Bible. It motivates so many wrongs. Anybody remember why the, uh, um, the Pharisees of Jesus' day wanted him killed? Well, even Pilate knew it because when Jesus was standing before him, he says these words. He knew that Jesus was delivered out of envy by the Pharisees. And they saw all the crowds leaving their teaching and following Jesus's teaching. Now, Joseph was the 12, was one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob. And uh, they didn't get along. They were your common, normal family. Uh, almost all the brothers rejected Jacob's favorite son. He's the guy that wore the, the coat of many colors. Remember that? They actually hated Jacob. Why? Because Jacob kept telling him, I keep having these dreams. Remember that? I got this dream that everybody, all of you are going to be bowing down to me. Even you, Dad. Really? I'm going to be elevated up to the stars of heaven. Dad, I, I, I'm going to be a great man. I don't know how. And everybody says, who does he think he is? He's not going to be ruling over me. And boy, did they take exception with him. And they were so angry with him. And they actually wanted to kill him. In the end, they sold him. I mean, how would you like to have a brother who's older than you and figures out how to sell you? I'm sure my older brother, 
pondered that a few times. What can I get for this kid if I just put him out on the front garden and said, for sale, all right? You know? <laughs> they abused him. They sold him into slavery for 30 little pieces of silver, 30 coins. And he endured slavery and then prison for the next 13 years. Not a nice way to be treated by your family. But it says here, look at the next verse, verse 10. Or at the end of verse 9, sorry. The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph in Egypt, uh, into Egypt, but God was with him. That's a great encouragement. Every one of us go through days like everybody else, but there's only one difference a Christian has, and that is God's with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. So don't look around and say, oh, I'm going through this again. Why am I going? I don't know. Just test yourself and go, is God with you? So we come here to verse uh uh, 10, and uh, after those 13 years, God saves Joseph out of all his afflictions. Verse 10 says this, and he delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. That's pretty cool. Took him from prison he was on death row, he was going to be executed for a false accusation, always false accusation. And he makes him second in command under Pharaoh. He's going to be in charge of the entire nation and empire of Egypt. And I want you to see what happens next. Then God uses this same rejected brother to save his brothers. Look at verse 11. Now there came a dearth, we'd say a famine over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction on the people. And our fathers found no sustenance, couldn't grow any food. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren and Joseph's kindred were made known unto Pharaoh. And then sent Joseph and called his father, Jacob to him and all his kindred, three score and 15 souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died he and our fathers and was carried his body was carried over unto Sychem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham brought bought for a sum of money of the sons of, of Emor the father of Shechem here's the point this brother that they had sold and they'd gotten rid of and they thought he was dead and gone they go into Egypt if you know the story they go into Egypt they try to buy corn and who do they meet not knowing it's him they meet Joseph now, Joseph looks like a pharaoh. I mean, he's, whoo, he's, he's at the top of the ladder there. And they're just, they're humbly coming in. Can we just buy some corn? And he calls them spies. Now, he's got a little carnal. He's kind of like, you came here to spot the land. And, no, 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 we're here. Just really honest. Anyway, he sort of plays with them for a little bit. But ultimately, he does reveal, it's me, guys. Can you imagine how they felt? He's going to kill us. That's what they feared for the next several years. They feared that Joseph was going to seek revenge. But we're not finished yet. Because it says there, he sends for his dad and brings the whole family. And in that famine where other people were starving all over the rest of the world, he feeds with the best of food. He saves his family. He saves those that hated him. Do you know there's greater, no greater picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament than, than Joseph. Because guess who Jesus saves? Sinners. Those who hated him. 
Guess who Jesus forgives? The unforgivable. Those who spit in his face, even those who nailed him to the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is unbelievable. So Joseph saved the very men who hated and had rejected him. What a great picture of Jesus. Um, then Stephen describes the people becoming slaves. Now, it starts off great and things go south. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham. What did we just see? What was the word? The promise. Remember that word. When the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The saying dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, treated them very uh, abusively, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. That's called a post-birth abortion. It's not new. They were requiring that especially male children of, of, the, of the Israelites, that when they were born, they were to be aborted after they were born. Verse 20, in which time Moses was born. Just hold there with that thought. I want you to think for a second. Israel became slaves in Egypt. Isn't it true we all have our dark times in our past? So did Israel. You know, when you read the Bible, sometimes you read it only as a story. Let me tell you, this is, I know we call it a history. It's his story. And he takes you through his working in people's lives so that you go, well, that's me. Well, that's what I'm going through. Well, that's how it's going to turn out. I can trust him. So when you see these things going on in, in Israel and them in Egypt and slavery, it will help you where you put your feet in their shoes and realize that was written for me. So Stephen doesn't focus on the on slavery. Does he say, guys, it was so wrong what the Egyptians to, did to us. We should demand that they give us reparations. We should demand that they apologize. No. You know what he says? He says, our fathers were slaves in Egypt, but God kept his promise. Stephen focuses on God's promises. He focused on God keeping a promise to bring Abraham's people out of Egypt to their own land where they were that day. Down to verse um, uh, 20. That was when Stephen, isn't it neat, isn't it neat? Stephen is going through about 1,500 years of history, and he's speaking over about 15 minutes. He's doing it amazingly. Here comes Moses now, verse 20. Which time Moses was born was exceeding fair. You know what that means? He was good looking. <laughs> and he was nursed up in his father's house three months. But what was the law? He was supposed to be dead. But his mama couldn't do it. Thank God for moms who still want to have kids and want to protect them from the abortion pill and the abortion knife. But verse 21, she had to cast him out, which means not throw away, but she had to cast him out by faith into that river, trusting that down the river there was a young lady who could save him, Potiphar's daughter. When he was cast out, Potiphar's daughter took him up and nursed him for her own son. What a miracle. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Stop there for a second. You would agree that Moses is a special child from birth. Um, she 
She doesn't name him because she figures she's going to have to watch him die one day. But when he's plucked up out of that river by Pharaoh's daughter, she says, that's his name, drawn out. She calls him Moses, which means he was saved. So she names him, that's his mom. And what does God do? God puts it in the heart of um, uh, Pharaoh's daughter to call for a Hebrew woman. Is there a Hebrew woman who would take care of this child for me? <laughs> you, you, over there. And it's, and it's Moses' mom gets to raise her own son in Potiphar's house, uh, sorry, in uh, uh, Pharaoh's house. That's God. So Moses is a special child, you'd agree. And he was prepared to be a great leader. Verse 22, we'll read it again. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Egypt, Pharaoh was preparing him to be a leader of Egypt. But Moses knew, uh, and down in um, verse, let me make sure I'm at the right thing. Okay, verse 23. But Moses knew he was destined for something else. I wish, I wish you wouldn't fight God in your life. You know, I'm, look, I'm, I'm preparing for this. But there's a, there's a tug in your heart where you know God's got something else for you. I wish you would learn from Moses where he says there's something more. Verse 23. And when he was full, 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. He's leaving the palace and going to the slave camps, and he's walking among them. Verse uh, 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong. So there's some Egyptian man beating up a, a, a Jewish man. He defended him, and he avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. He ended up killing the Egyptian guard or taskmaster, whatever it was. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. He says, I want you guys to trust me. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to free you. Well, watch the reaction, verse 26. And the next day he showed himself unto them, to those same two guys who had been protected by Moses, as they strove, so they're arguing, and would have set them at one again, trying to unify them, saying, Sirs, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one to another? But he that did his brother, brother, his neighbor wrong thrust Moses away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? I want to beat this guy up. Leave me alone. Wow. What you just saw was, uh, oh, no, hold on there. What you just saw there was that his own people, God's own people, rejected Moses and said, who are you? They didn't trust him. They had the wrong expectation of who was going to help them. Uh, remember, Moses doesn't look like any of them. He looks like an Egyptian, doesn't he? Okay. He smells clean. He probably hadn't got dirt under his fingernails in years. He doesn't live like them. He doesn't talk like them. He's got all this authority and they're terrified of him. And they had the wrong expectation of him. Well, that's okay. God says, we're not finished with your education anyway. So he goes out to, uh, to um, the desert, verse 30. Uh, verse, go back to uh, verse 29. Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Median where he begat two sons, and then four, and when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire, there we are, 
in the bush. We know that story. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Moses trembled and durst not behold. He couldn't bring himself to look on it. And then said the Lord to him, put off the shoes from off thy feet for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. And I have heard their groaning and I am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee unto Egypt. Hmm. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush. Verse 37. Well, let me, let me, uh, verse 36. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So he was prepared by the Egyptians for great, greatness in Egypt and that went south because he knew something God had something for him and the devil nearly ruined him from ever serving God again and so God says you know what I think I'll teach you patience how long did he have to wait before God started with him again 40 years and then God taught him a little humility and said I need a shepherd I need a shepherd to go and save my people Moses thought that as a man in great power and with great authority who commanded armies, he could deliver Israel from slavery, and he couldn't. Moses needed to learn that a little humility will go a long way, amen? And a shepherd can bring down a Pharaoh, amen? So all of Egypt's and all of the world's best training can do nothing in comparison to what God can do when he's humbling you and he's teaching you patience. Moses goes up and speaks to, can you imagine the first time he meets, uh, meets Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, this guy looks familiar. And then out of his mouth goes, Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go. And I bet Pharaoh, went, <laughs> who is this? But you know what? That was God's man. And as incapable as he was, God was with him. And the Jews love that story. The Jews know that that was God. But they forgot that they had rejected him, remember? So good old Stephen's reminding them, you rejected Joseph and you rejected Moses when God gave him to you. This is going somewhere. Anybody sort of see the pattern? All right, let's keep going. <laughs> then he gives an insert, sort of important reminder about Moses because they nearly worshiped Moses. Verse 37, we'll look at it again. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet there in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet shall the Lord raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto who? So Moses is a very important guy. He writes the laws of God. He writes the words of God. He has all authority to direct all of Israel, what is right and where to go and where to be, what to do. He has great power. He even has the power to do miracles. He says, there's coming a prophet who's just like me, who will speak laws and will speak the word of God and will do miracles. And just as Moses saved God's people, Matthew 121 says, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Amen. There is coming. Moses said there is coming someone just like me. Look at the last part of the verse. I can find it here myself. Verse 37. Yeah. Let me read verse 37 again. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, he, him shall ye hear. It's a command. You shall hear him. Uh, I wonder who, Jesus, who uh, Moses was referring to. You shouldn't wonder. Stephen continues. Uh, in verse 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. This is Moses that was in the church in the wilderness, which the angels speak unto him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively, lively oracles given unto us. Wow, this is the guy who delivered us as a nation from um, Egypt, and we were in a church now. He actually calls it a church. It's a slam to the uh, 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 to the Jews who only believed in the synagogue, only believed in the, uh, the, the temple. And he says, that was a church back there in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt and Moses was the pastor. And he says, that was the role of Moses saving us from a life of slavery to freedom. Um, but he was, but okay, so out they come in verse 39 to whom our fathers would not obey. We'll recall that. Rebellion. Stubbornness. But thrust him from them, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Uh, they wanted to go back into slavery? Does that make sense? Well, it doesn't when you're on this side. But do you know what? Have you ever known anybody who kept going back to the drugs, back to the drink, back to the old friends, back to the... Well, they're saved. I know they're saved. Why do they keep struggling? Because it's the devil they know. And they think they can manage it. But the truth is, they're trying to go backwards from the will of God, which is far better. And they, they want to go by sight instead of by faith, which is trusting the promises of God. And the people of God had a problem with faith. What did they end up doing? They ended up trusting a God of their own hands, little G. And can you imagine, I don't think there's anything more weird than worshiping a young cow. Okay? It is utterly ridiculous. That was a joke. Verse 40. Saying, and, and they wanted to go back into Egypt, verse 40, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us for, as, for this Moses, which brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We wot not, we understand not what has become of him. We don't understand because Moses had just gone up to the Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And he said, he's taking a long time. Are we there yet? Is he coming back yet? Let's go home. And verse 41, and they made a calf. They didn't even make a full Full cow, they made a calf in those days, and they offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host, not just of cows, but even of the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle, not of God, but of a, wicked God named Molech. I'll talk about him in a second. And you carried the star of your God, Rempham. 
figures which he made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Jordan. What a terrifying way to talk. When Israel started trusting idolatry and started to want to go their own way, you know what God did? He let them worship any way they wanted. He said, that's fine, but look where it led them. They didn't just end up worshiping a golden cow. They started worshiping the stars. They started worshiping all the gods of heaven. They became obsessed with astrologies and horoscopes, Stonehenge, uh, New Grange, Spiritism, probably worshiped aliens from outer space. See, it, when you reject the one true God, you'll fall for anything. God said, I'm going to let you go your own way. Now, Stephen mentions two particular gods that kind of embarrassed the Jews. One was called Molech. Now, I, I um, don't think I've got a picture of him. No, I don't. Uh, Molech was discovered to be a god that was an iron furnace. You can't imagine how depraved you get when you start to believe in the gods of your imagination. They, they created this, this idol. It was about 15 feet tall had a base that he sat upon that was actually a furnace, like a barbecue grill, but it was covered. So they're, they're throwing wood and fire uh, into the base of that thing. And on the top sat this thing that looked like a bull. And he had his hands stretched out and he was made out of iron. So he glowed bright red. This was Moloch. Moloch was in charge of the ground and the, and the, uh, the farms producing um, you know, giving you a good crop. And so according to the priests of Moloch, the way to get a good crop was to take your firstborn child and put that child into the outstretched arms of king of the, of the god Moloch. And his outstretched arms were made out of copper and brass, glowing red, and it would be instantly incinerated. And the people would line up and they would sacrifice their children so they would have a good crop. You say, well, that's horrible. Those are, that's, that's so uncivilized. And yet how many children have been abused and left alone so that you can get your job and you can have your cars and you can have your life. And we've let our children be ruined by the gods of this world. We're just as wicked. So when he mentioned how God had brought up about Molech and this other Remfam, Remfam was one of the most Insignificant little gods is like the god of, of whispers. It's like the most pitiful god ever created. And he was like two extremes. He said, you worshipped all gods in between. And he says something amazing. He reminds them. Watch this. Verse 44. In the midst of all of that, our fathers that had that had turned so far away from God, our fathers had the very tabernacle of God's witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen in heaven. Moses made a tent so that God would remind them, I'm with you, verse 40, 45, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. He's racing now. He's going to finish his message very quickly. But he reminds them Israel had God's presence among them, that it was, and then he uses a word. What's the word? Jesus. Look at that word again. It's in your Bible. All the new Bibles change it. If you've got a New King James or you've got an NIV or you've got a, 
uh, a New Jerusalem Bible, it'll say Joshua. And that's not what Stephen said. The Greek word is, well, the Hebrew word is Yeshua. But the word is Jesus. Look at, where did I, where did I leave off there? Verse 45, when also, which also our fathers, um, nope, I'm, yes, which also our fathers, which came after, our fathers who came after Moses, brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, into the promised land. Now he, I mean, when he said that, they knew he was meaning Joshua, because guess what? Joshua in the Old Testament is the same pronunciation of Jesus in the New Testament in Greek. So you can't, you can't figure, what, does he mean Jesus or mean Joshua? He means both. Stephen is going right for the heart, folks. He says, and Jesus brought Israel into the promised land. Moses couldn't do it, did he? The law can't bring you into a relationship with God. Who can bring? God's grace can through Jesus Christ. So that is such a, Stephen's one of the best preachers in the entire Bible. He is going, going. He knows his audience and his audience is following along. They're not missing a word. They had been brought in by Jesus. And he also says, God's people enjoyed great prosperity. Look at verse 45, uh, talking about the end. Um, okay, look at what happens, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out. I mean, God gave them victory, drove out all of those Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the termites, and the flashlights. Before the face of our fathers, all the way until the days of David, about 450 years, verse 6. Who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. Jacob David was good and he wanted to make a proper tabernacle for God. And that brings up the temple. In verse 46, he mentions this thing referring to the temple. In verse 47, look at verse 47. But Solomon built him a house. Now, when he says that, you got to remember, Israel at the time of Solomon was a blessed nation. There was no wars around them. He, they were at peace with all the countries around them. They were not bothered by anybody. They were just making money hand over fist. And when it says that Solomon built a temple, I want you to understand, this is the pinnacle. This is the most beautiful thing. This is the centerpiece of all Israel. If you are 30 miles away from Israel and you're riding on your donkey and you're coming and you can see on the horizon this glow, this beautiful shimmer, this reflection of the sun of a golden building. It was a temple of Solomon. It brought great pride and great thrill that that's our temple. But who built it? Only Solomon. That's a very important thing, what you understand. You see, they were very successful, very prosperous as a nation, and they built this glorious temple like you can't imagine. But it was not built by God. Ouch. See, when he says, but it was built by Solomon, he's as if he's saying, but it was built only by, Mo by Solomon. Only a mortal man. Verse 48. How be it, however, the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophets, heaven is my throne, 
and the earth is my footstool where I put my dirty feet. Hmm. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Now think about it for a second. A mortal man named Solomon built this glorious temple. I mean, it is fancy, it is expensive, it is gold covered, but God doesn't dwell there. By the way, he doesn't dwell in cathedrals either. Remember when you were growing up and mom or grandma brought you in the temple? Shh, God's here. Shh, he's in that box. Shh, God's here. No, he's not. No, he's not. God doesn't dwell in buildings. God doesn't, God dwells among his people. God, where two or three are gathered together, that's where I am. But they're learning that they had so made a temple into a place, that's where God is. And they forgot that God had said, that's not where I live. Success had ruined their faith. Is it not ruining ours? You see, we live in a very, we're at the end of a very successful Celtic tiger. And our, our parents had half of what we have. And our grandparents had a tenth of what we have. We're blessed, and yet we're the least religious, the least passionate about God. Success will ruin you. And what is Solomon saying? Who cares if that temple comes crushing down? Who cares about the temple? Don't you care about a relationship with God? And that is when Stephen pointed his words at those men staring at him. Look, verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised, not physic in flesh, but in what? In heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Have you not learned the lessons of history? Verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain them. They, they, they murdered them, which showed before the coming of the just one. They even told you a long, long time ago of the coming of the Messiah, of whom ye have now been now the betrayers and murderers. This is what he calls. He calls them two things. He calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. I mean, that's pretty strong. Stiff neck means they were stubborn. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not bending. I mean, there were times where my children, I mean, I, I rarely use the illustration anymore, but it is so true. You get, you, you, especially my oldest son, Joel, uh, I'd say, Joel, sit down. He'd go, no. <laughs> what was that, stiff neck? I'm not bending. You're not going to be in charge. I'm not yielding. When he calls him stiff-necked, he says, when God works in you, you stiffen up instead of yielding. Stiff-necked, arrogant, hard-necked, hard-hearted, and they were uncircumcised in their hearts and ears. What does that mean? They were, they were circumcised physically. Oh, they wouldn't be Jews if they weren't circumcised, but it means that they were unchanged in their hearts. They were unconverted in their souls. A lot of people in this room can pray a prayer. You can go through the sinner's prayer a hundred times a day. You can quote Bible verses. You know where to find things in the Bible. It's all outside. Has your heart been converted? Is your soul saved? That's what 
Stephen is pointing out. He's saying the only difference between you and me is you're circumcised, I'm circumcised, but that doesn't get us in heaven. Your heart has to be saved. Your heart has to be changed. Your soul has to be converted. And then Stephen said the harshest words imaginable. He said, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 51 again. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always, you have always resisted the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do ye. Again, a lot, the New Testament put a lot of, especially in Acts, put a lot of emphasis on the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, for a reason. Because everyone was missing out on the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And people are too prone to do that. We, we worry about God and God and God and God. We don't know him personally. We don't know Jesus. If I said, have you prayed and spent time with Jesus today? That means something more than, have you prayed today to God? There's something personal. And there's where you realize the Holy Spirit is the silent worker in my life, even when I don't even know it. That is God, the Spirit, working on me. And how do I react to him? We'll talk about that in a moment. And he, he said, you've now rejected your Messiah. Which of the prophets did you not kill? Because they hated everyone. You know, every time a prophet came up, they were rejected. Not one prophet. Now, I'm glad that I have an audience that wants to hear me. Amen. But Amos didn't. Elijah didn't. Isaiah didn't. When they came into a town, they had to preach and run. Which of your prophets have you not rejected? And which of them have you not even tried to kill? He says you are resisting every time. You're rejecting every time what God tries to do in your life. Look at the reaction, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they says, you're right. And wouldn't that have been a great service? That would have been a great, man, I tell you what, that would have been awesome. But it didn't happen. <laughs> when they heard these were things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, I can only connect that to my mother. Because when I was... When I got in trouble, she began to talk through her teeth. Did anybody other mother ever? You got me so mad I can't see straight. That's what they're doing. They are just, they are demon possessed in anger, folks. That first, that first reaction of that audience is pure, unadulterated, deep, fierce, murderous anger. They tensed up into a murderous mob. Notice the second reaction, verse 55. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, <laughs> he looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. He's been beaming this entire time. He's not angry with his words. He's not looking at him going, and I hate you, and I hate you, and I hate what you've done. No, he may be loud and clear, but he's full of the Holy Ghost. And he says, wow. I mean, the crowd is angry at him, and he's, he's not even looking at the crowd. <sighs> Guys, woo, I'm going home. Woo, I see. I see Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's standing at the right hand of the Father. I mean, whoa. At that point, 
Stephen's attention is elsewhere, and the crowd is just getting angry. How can he say this? And verse 57, when they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, and they ran upon him with one accord. Look what it says, verse um, 58, and they cast him out of the city, they dragged him out, and they stoned him. I want you to note the last half of that verse because that's next year, next that's two weeks from now where we talk about it. And everybody got so into, I want to have a, I want to have no problem with, uh, with throwing the biggest stones. So they're taking off their jackets and they hand it to one man who's holding all the coats. And they gave all of those jackets. There's a man standing there. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You hit him for me. There's a young man standing there and he's all of the clothes are there at his feet whose name was Saul in verse 59 they stoned Stephen what was he doing while they were stoning on him stoning him he was calling upon God and saying Lord I'm coming home <laughs> receive my spirit and at the last that wasn't the last thing that Stephen said and he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, get them. <laughs> That's what I would have prayed. I mean, when you've been hit with a rock, the size of your fist, and it's hit your head, and you can't see because of the blood gushing out, what would you cry out? Look at verse 60. He kneeled down, and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen forgave him. I wonder whose example he's following. Jesus. The very people who were rejecting Stephen now, he says, it's just like them, Lord. <laughs> That's okay. You forgave me. Would you forgive them too? I forgive them. Would you too? And then he fell asleep. I love those words. The last phrase. And when he had said this, it doesn't say, and he died. Aren't you glad? You're reading the Bible. And the Bible says he didn't die, did he? He fell asleep. You say, well, I've seen some people go through some terrible pain in the hospital. Yeah, but if they're saved, they just went to sleep and they woke up with Jesus. Amen. It'd be a horrible thing to be in the hospital in pain and not have Jesus Christ. I guarantee you, when you finally do pass away, you'll wish you could die. Stephen went to sleep. I love that. Now, I'm finished. 60 verses. We've heard a man preach a faithful message from the Word of God. Whew. What does he say? First of all, we learn that God has always been working on people. Amen? And when you were lost, and for all those years where you didn't have any interest in the God of the Bible, yeah, you went to church, and you went and you prayed your prayers, you did your things, but you didn't want to know the God of the Bible. God wanted to know you. God was out looking for you. God was talking to you. And maybe somebody went and handed you a gospel track and you took it and you threw it and you put it on the ground and you walked away. And God was showing you.
I'm going to stay on you. Folks, this faithful man is reminding not only those Pharisees and religious zealots that God was working on them and they had rejected him. He's reminding us. And I look back and I go, I wish I had gotten saved when I was six or seven or eight. I'm glad I got saved when I was 17. I shudder to think that if I had gone off to college and gotten into a lot of trouble like the people I knew in secondary school did, whether I ever would have gotten saved or whether I would have lived to get saved. But would you look back on your life and say, I probably have been resisting and rejecting the Holy Ghost just like they did all that time, and I'm ashamed of it. What was it that ruined those Pharisees' abilities to follow Jesus? You know what it was? The same thing that it ruined Israel, envy. We're constantly comparing ourselves with other people and other people. If somebody's going, remember a couple of years ago, everybody had two holidays in their year. Remember that? Guarantee you in the next year or so, everybody's going to be having three. <laughs> it's this thing. And when you hear that somebody's going on holiday again, I'm going to go on holiday again. Envy heals us so that we don't say, God, I need you more than I need a holiday. Envy, wrong expectations. Well, you know, I always wanted a better preacher than that Texan. Don't like how he talks. He, he, he never really appreciates me. What am I saying? Wrong expectations by Israel ruin their ability to be blessed by God. God gave you a stuttering preacher. Would you put up with him? Well, I'm putting up with you, pastor. It's the same thing. What ruined the Pharisees' abilities? What has ruined your ability to follow the Son of God? It won't be your circumstances. You know, Israel in slavery in Egypt was not a problem. Your problem is not a problem with God. As a matter of fact, every time you go through a hard time, if you just yield to God and let the work of the Holy Spirit on you, you'll be a better man, a better woman. Always tough times make us better. And that made Israel grow. Israel was a great nation coming out of Egypt. You say, they should have been like POWs. <gasps> I can't even walk. No, they came out with a high hand. They were healthy. God had helped them and protected them and now brought them out. And they forgot. That's how you start, at the bottom. What has ruined your ability? Make sure it's not idolatry like it was the Israelites. The work of your hands. I heard somebody say this. I'd never known this. I have to check it out. Maybe I'm wrong. I should have checked it out before. But the, the Roman emperors, when they would go through Rome, and they would parade through Rome in all of their glory, they paid a guy called a clown, okay? We call them politicians now. But they paid a, a clown to constantly dance around him and say these words as he is being uh, waved with, with uh, fans and his people are adoring him. And as everybody's throwing roses and coins into his chariot, there's a clown saying, you are not a god. You are not a God, to remind him that he was not a God. Because it does go to your head, doesn't it? All that power, all of that success can get to your head. And we forget, I'm just a man. I'm just a lady. I'm just a kid. And I need God. What has God done in your life that maybe you misunderstood and you fought against? Good and bad. 
You say, well, wait a minute. I believe God was in the blessings and the devil was in the problems. No, no, no. God was in both of them. And when you look back and you say, well, that turned me off from God, you missed God. Because my God works everything out for, and that word, all things, means all things. So remember, we're going to get to chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 9. Guess who we meet on the road to Damascus is Paul. And what does, what does Jesus say to Saul? He says, it's hard to kick against the pricks. Every time I've been working in your life, you've been kicking me, Saul. Stop. Stop fighting me. Stop misunderstanding. It's time to stop fighting Jesus and say, Lord, whatever you say, I'll do. Because that is the biggest thing that Stephen wanted was for his people, for Israel, to finally say, we missed him, but we're going to follow him now. And that's what Stephen died for, was so that people could see there's a different way to live. That's why we meet on a Sunday. Because Stephen stood up and said, he's worth dying for. Can we not look at our world and say, God needs men once again to stand up and speak up God's truth. And that no matter what people are going through, they're fighting God, it's time to give in. I surrender. Because what does Saul say right after that? He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I surrender. Will you stand with me? Bow your heads in, in the same way. Say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? You're trying to get me to forgive somebody? Trying to get me to finally humble myself and say, I'm just like my drunkard dad. I'm just like my angry friends. I'm just like countless generations of people who fought the God who loved them and died for them. And I'm, I've got to stop. I've got to stop and I've got to let you win. I don't want to fight you anymore. From, from Abraham on, when things like with Jacob and his children and all the rejection through Israel and Moses, all the rejection, all the problems, you were still there. You were always, always still there working on them. And I know you're working on us. I pray that we respond right. Even in this moment, God, we'd say, God, I didn't realize in my times where I was a slave to some sin, where I was a slave to some situation, you were there. And I, I fought you when you tried to free me. You tried to change me. And I'm tired of being outside type Christian. I want to be a real Christian on the inside. I want to follow Jesus. I just want to trust him. I want to start believing every one of his promises. And I'll do it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Have your...